The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jessica Tillman. She is the Associate Dean for Government Procurement Law and Government Contracts. And she is also the Advisory Council Distinguished Professional Lecturer in Government Contracts, Law, Practice, and Policy at the George Washington University Law School. Uh, That is quite a title, Jessica. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, it'll be, uh, Jessica, after this, I'm just going to refer to you as the Associate Dean, okay? I mean, just totally fine. (laughs) All right. That's what most people do. Right, because yeah, you know, we'll lose recording time if we go through that title too many times. <laughs> it needs its own zip code. Yeah, all right, and I'll screw it up. So, but um, you know, first of all, um, you know, GW Law School is a great law school, um, and the government contracts uh, uh, program is like the leading one in the world, based in, in my, from my opinion, and uh, I am a little biased, but yes, it is. Um, but let's talk. Uh, let's so let's talk about that first. And first, I want to just—it's always interesting to hear how people have gotten to where they are <laughs> at any particular point in life. So, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you came to GW? Sure, absolutely. So, I'm an alum. Um, I uh, came to uh, GW uh, almost 25 years ago uh, for law school, having never heard of government contracts, um, like many incoming JDs. I mean, I suppose I assumed the government bought things, but I never really thought about it. Um, And I was uh, dead set on being a prosecutor when I came to law school. Uh, But then I met a brand new uh, baby professor uh, by the name of Steve Schooner. Uh, He was in his, I believe, like first or second year of teaching. Uh, And he had posters around the law school looking for research assistants and uh, his poster said, come see me if you're interested in doing research um, about exciting things or things that go boom. And I was like, what is this? Uh, so I reached out to him and quickly learned that government contracts was nothing like first year contracts in law school. Um, its own unique space. And uh, the rest is history. I, I, I started doing work in government contracts. Uh, following law school, I clerked at the United States Court of Federal Claims for Judge Margolis, um, went to work for a law firm uh, for about four-ish years uh, doing government contracts and also white-collar investigations. And uh, from there, I was brought back to GW. I actually had started adjuncting first for a little bit, um, teaching students, but was brought back in 08 um, to run a program at the school, um, but also to start teaching as well full-time so i kind of came full circle i almost feel like i never left well yeah and uh so so what in your role currently uh what does an associate dean do and can you talk a little about what your typical kind of day or semester is (laughs) sure so 
There is no typical day. Um, <laughs> the, uh, an associate dean is basically like if you would do the equivalent with other organizations, you're like the executive director or the president or the CEO of your program, right? You're not the CEO of the law school. That's our actual dean, Dean Matthew. But um, you're the dean of the program. And um, it's a mix in academia. So the bulk of being a dean comes down to really managing a very, very large program. We have a, a lot of degree programs. We have graduate students getting procurement degrees. We have hybrid degrees in procurement and environmental law and government procurement and cybersecurity law. Um, we have degrees for both uh, attorneys and non-attorney acquisition professionals. So there's diversity in, in, in our student population. We also have a JD concentrators. So JDs that come just to get their law degree wind up specializing in government procurement um, or government procurement and cybersecurity. So it's a really large program. And a lot of it ranges from, as you can imagine, any type of program, you know, uh, it's, it's academic, you know, overseeing academic affairs, overseeing the schedule, our curriculum, our adjuncts that we hire, the professors that we, we, we have, um, our programming for the year, um, its development, because like many nonprofit academic institutions, you have to raise money for scholarships, as you're sure, quite familiar yeah. with. Um, it's communications and marketing, it's admissions. So it's a really multifaceted job. And especially being the program that we are with our role within the community, it's we have tentacles out everywhere. So it's a, it's a really large, large program to manage. And then on top of it, I also teach. So I teach our foundational government procurement course, um, formation of government contracts, which is just truly A to Z in starting from the beginning of, you know, market research and all the way to awarding the contract and protest thereafter um, to uh, my subspecialty, which is anti-corruption and compliance in the procurement space. So it's kind of teaching, writing, speaking, all of that. Yeah, too. is that sort of where that your your original interest in you know being a prosecutor comes in your interest in that area <laughs> yeah yeah you know it's funny i was dead set on being a prosecutor and so all of the work that i did in law school coursework and even internships and we know with the justice department and us attorney's office were all designed to become a prosecutor but i had steve schooner next to me continually bringing government contracts into the space. And so um, I kind of remained interested in both, even though if you actually look at law firm practices, those two tend to not really overlap. You either have the government contracts group and the white collar group, but I was, I was really fortunate at the firm. They let me split my time between the white collar and GovCon group. So I got a little bit of both and that really birthed the idea and kind of expansion of the course that I teach at, at yeah. GW Law School. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, with that, all those management responsibilities, where do you find time to actually? I don't yeah, see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you talk, talk talk a little bit about, I wanted to get, get this in, and, and when we talk about GW, is that as you have, you guys have been a leader in like online or virtual, whatever you want to call it, you know, courses, curriculum outreach to folks on a worldwide basis. Can you a little talk about, you know, where you are in your program and how it came to be? Yeah, sure. So, so we're the academic birthplace, um, of the study of government procurement law. It started at GW in 1960. So we've been doing it a really long time. And, um, as we developed kind of new programs and started reaching out, um, to, offer degrees, and this is the condensed version of a much lengthier history, sure. uh, to even non-acquisition professionals, we realized that 
you know, yes, we get a good chunk of students that'll be willing to come, you know, for one to three years to Washington, D.C. for our degree programs. But there are many all around the world that want to take advantage of our procurement degrees that just can't make the move. So I always say if we did online education, you know, this is well before COVID. So we've been doing it, you know, well over 10 years, um, designed to start slowly moving our curriculum um, online. And the goal in doing it was to always make sure that we were offering the same experience to online students as to the on-campus students. This wasn't a, you know, put some recordings on a, on a, in a program and have people, you know, turn in some assignments and you never have contact with the professors. These are real courses with active learning and active engagement. And, and we, and we spent a lot of time in developing them. Now, these days, I'd say the majority of our curriculum is online. The biggest growth in our program is online and, you know, post COVID with technological enhancements, it's even, it's just really benefited our program. And so we really have seen, we have students all over the world at, in all different time zones taking our courses. Um, and that really does, um, match our, our kind of core audience. We're, we're global. So when we do webinars, we often have, you know, representatives from over 60 countries listening to our programming. Um, so it, it's, we recognize that it's not just, our focus is U.S. federal procurement in our teaching, even though we have international-based courses um, and even state and local courses, but, uh, but our reach is truly, truly global. Yeah, well, it seems to me like, well, every government has some sort of procurement system. You know, and uh, I guess the you know sophistication of it can vary, and you know the rules of the road and whatnot. So I assume they folks want to take and see how the U.S. government does it, right? And then also, it seems to me, you know, there's lots of folks who are in government contracts who are who will either work for the government or work for contractors, and they could be located anywhere. So, yeah, a lot of our student base, we see we see a lot of students that are kind of you know you see clusters around military bases because yeah. for obvious reasons um, for their positions. Um, so I'd say a core group of our, our MSL students, and this is the master's degree for non-attorney acquisition professionals will typically come from uh, government or even company positions where companies increasingly are sending their students, um, you know, from their contracting teams uh, to get our degree, our degrees as well. But you're right when it comes to governments around the world, um, many still look to the United States with the most mature procurement system um, for best practices. So a lot of folks, I, I see a lot of people signing up for webinars from governments globally yeah. um, to learn from our best practices. And that's consistent with work. We, Many of us in the faculty in our program work with the U.S. government to help engage in like capacity building with emerging economies to help them with their procurement systems as well. And for your students who are, you know, taking courses virtually, do you have like virtual office hours too? <laughs> yes. Well, actually, interestingly, I do all my office hours by zoom now anyway, because oh, okay. it's so much easier. Um, yeah. But I will say we really do work hard to make sure that they get a similar experience. So um, if for the in-person events, it's pretty hard to do that. But we do do a virtual happy hour twice a year and we send them fun swag uh, and we play trivia. And I know that sounds kind of lame, but it's actually super fun and a great way for us to connect. So we do try to bring it to them. And then when we have events, like when NCMA has World Congress or other types of events, we try to make sure we bring them in so that everyone can kind of meet face-to-face as well. Okay, that's great. And Jessica, we're up on the break. So when you come back, we'll start diving into some of um, the areas you're focusing, some of your work and your research on. My guest today is Jessica 
Tillipman. She is the Associate Dean for Government Procurement Law and Government Contracts at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guest today is Jessica Tiltman. She is the Associate Dean for Government Procurement Law and Government Contracts at the George Washington University Law School. And, you know, first segment, we talk a lot about the school. Um, you know, it's your responsibilities and role as Associate Dean. Um, and now we get into the fun stuff of <laughs> uh, Jessica and talking about some of the research and work that you're focusing on in the government contracts field. And, you know, the first one I wanted to ask you about, I know you've mentioned it to me a couple different times when we've talked outside the context of the show is that's uh, the revolving door. Um, And you're, 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 you're working on some article, an article on that and doing some research in that area. So first of all, it's like, what is the revolving door and why are you, you know, focusing on it right now? Sure thing. Um, Like, like many, um, projects and at past articles um, that I've written, it always starts with somebody making me very angry about something. So um, that would be the genesis. And I'll give you that story in a moment. But the revolving door for the um, uninitiated is um, the term that is often used to describe uh, employees movement uh, back and forth, uh, you know, to government from the private sector or from government to the private sector. Um, And that because there's often so much movement, particularly in Washington, D.C., it's called that revolving door. So that's what it's basically referring to Um, and often viewed referred to in a negative way. So I'll get to that in a moment. Um, I I started writing about this um, or sort of researching because it's a work in progress right now. uh, based on something that I saw on the internet. So, you know, this is, God, this is a few years ago. Um, I was scrolling through my phone um, back when X was Twitter and still a relatively usable platform um, and saw <laughs> a um, somebody that worked at a, a government watchdog group, which, by the way, as somebody who does anti-corruption compliance, I love watchdog groups. I love the good governance groups very much. But I saw somebody tweet something. Uh, do they say still say tweet? Because they do. X yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I don't know sure. what else you would say. You saw somebody <laughs> X something. I don't know. It's just uh, terrible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have thoughts on that rebranding. Uh, yeah. So, and so does everybody, right? Right. Um, and I see somebody tweet something about a DoD official who had left to accept employment at a large government contractor, and this kind of thread on Twitter was blasting this this woman you know basically is really disparaging about this move and you know yet again here's another person moving from dod to a contractor and and just really negative light and so i'm looking at this thinking oh there's a scandal here what what happened and i get there and there's no scandal it's just this movement so i i i reply back publicly are you suggesting this person did something wrong no but this is just you know emblematic of of, of this type of move that we see all the time of people moving from DOD to the private sector and the problems. And it kind of went on about how this is problematic. And, and that really bothered me because you have an individual who's not accused of wrongdoing, who for all that we know probably complied with their ethics requirements with the government. I can't verify that, but there was no allegation of wrongdoing. And, and, and the entire kind of thrust of this argument was that is bad to, to basically go from working for the government, especially DOD, and go to work for a defense contractor. And that made me really angry um, because, you know, 
to me, I was looking at this thinking, this is vilifying like a normal movement. And um, I talk about it in my class with my students a lot because I say, what do you think of when you hear the word revolving door? And, and they all say, no, bad stuff, D.C., swamp, you know, whatever you can imagine. And I say, how many of you are thinking of clerking for a judge? And they raise their hand. How many are thinking about going to the private sector? They raise their hand. Who thinks they may at some point go to the government? They raise their hand. Well, congratulations, you're engaging in the revolving door. Well, it's different. Is it? Right? It's the same, it's the same type of movement. And I also walk them through this kind of exercise, which is like when you need something done, when you need plumbing fixed in your house or you need something done, and you go and you try to search for somebody, maybe on like TaskRabbit or like Handy or one of those apps, what are you looking for? Are you looking for somebody who's, you know, specializes in tutoring kindergarten students, or are you looking for somebody who knows how to fix a toilet? And of course, you're looking for experience and, and relevant experience. And and I, I think the challenge that I have is that the the the, the tone um, and the conversation has moved to views people's movement from government and to the private sector and vice versa so negatively that we forget that the whole reason that people make these moves and the reason that they're hireable and the reason that, you know, we have this revolving doors because people value experience. And, and so I decided to start doing work on a project that would really try to change the tone of the conversation about this area of the law. Yeah, I think, and it's, uh, it's, uh, I applaud your effort in this regard. And I guess say from my personal experience, uh, when I left government, you know, you go through a whole process of laying out to your ethics official all the major things you've worked on if you're like in you know position I was in and different programs and procurements and you know you have to disclose all that and then your ethic the lawyer the ethics lawyer you know will take all that information and write up you know you know your sort of discharge ethics guidance as to what you can and can't do and what you're prohibited from doing based on those things you were personally you know substantially involved in and you know, I mean, I still have that. And it's like, you know, it's like 17, uh, 17 years later um, since, you know, I uh, last served in government. Wow, it's got, now it's a long time. Holy <laughs> smokes. But, um, you know, so there's a whole process that's designed to address those kind of pejorative thoughts people have when they hear the revolving door. And I think people miss that. Um and I just get your take on this. It seems to me the revolving door, quite frankly, is something that's good for the nation as a whole in a sense that people who have experience they can go into different roles to, and ultimately they're going to do something that's going to turn around and support government operations in most cases. And if you can help an organization do it more efficiently and effectively, you know, based on your experience and understanding of government, why, you know, that's, the, that's a, that's a great thing. And the last thing I'll say is government folks, you know, it's, it is service. And, you know, it's, if you, if they wanted to go, if folks wanted to go to the private sector and make a lot of money, they could do that. If they want to serve the country, that's why they go into it. And at the end of the day, you know, the, the fact that they go and work in the private sector, uh, I think God bless them. Any reactions to those things? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And, you know, when you, you actually look at some of the, the studies that have come out, they show a link that um, in situations where there are stricter, um, like o overly restrictive post-employment rules, that actually the 
expertise of the regular regulators were lower. They spent less time at the office. They invested less in like acquiring the knowledge. Like they really just didn't show that incentive or inclination to do better at work while with the government to do more when they leave. Right. So the, the lacks that incentive. And then, then they found the reverse where that some of the toughest regulators, the people that worked hardest, that actually were tougher on industry while on government had some of the best jobs when they left, um, that there was a correlation, you know, that knowledge and expertise you gain from maybe championing a new law or a new policy um, or priority um, makes you more valuable on the back end um, for your knowledge and expertise. And also you bring with that an understanding and expectation of what the government's going to do, which actually is been seen to enhance compliance um, in the private sector entity that that people will go to. So the data backs up what you're saying. And, you know, frankly, when I look at the revolving door, I look at what laws we have in place, and we already have substantial laws. I mean, you just talked about all the different hoops that you jumped through when you left government service. You know, government employees have to do that. We have criminal laws designed to go after kind of some of the most nefarious conduct where people are trying to profit off their jobs. And we all know the horror stories of some of the worst examples. And I know before, who is it? Who am I thinking of? Because everybody knows who we're thinking of when the post-employment. Do you know I'm thinking of, Roger? The, the mm-hmm. biggest, she's on every PowerPoint that anybody has in ethics training. What, Darlene Druyan? Of course, Darlene yeah. Druyan, right? Yeah. I always joke yeah. she should she should get royalties from Microsoft the number of yeah. times her picture's been on a PowerPoint in an ethics presentation. Yep. Um, she's really kind of the, and for lack of a better word, and, and I'm, you know, I don't want to pick on her, like uh, the boogeyman of like post-employment, you know, negotiations. Right. But we have, we have laws in place to go for everything from when you're starting to look for a job to when after you've left the job, um, to go after that type of conduct. Um, and so the the challenges is when I start to see things like people proposing, you know, in a complete elimination of people's ability to make that move, or you see things like, let's raise the cooling off period from two years to four years. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't understand this idea that if we just make more or we make it harder or we make it longer, that it's going to somehow make the system better or more ethical. To me, there are certainly ways to tweak a system to make it more effective that that don't require more. Uh, more isn't always better. Um, and and so um, I think that that's the challenge that we're grappling with. So my, my article is really going to focus on kind of what do we have in place to try to guard against the worst kind of conduct? Is it enough? How could it be improved? And how do we really change this conversation? And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion in some of these key areas of government procurement, things you're focusing on. Uh, my guest today is Jessica Til- Tilletman. She is the Associate Dean for for government procurement law and government contracts at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guest today is Jessica Tiltman. She is the Associate Dean for Government Procurement Law and Government Contracts at the George Washington University Law School. Um, we've been talking, we talked about law school, we talked about revolving door, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about protests, but I know there's a really interesting case, uh, that you brought to my attention with regard to sort of a reverse conflict of interest. I can, you, what, what is that? And what was that case about? Sure. So we've actually seen, um, and to understand this in context, we've actually seen a growing number of protests, uh, alleging that, uh, there's a conflict of interest because, 
uh, a firm has hired a former government official and that official has, you know, a provided an unfair competitive advantage uh, because of this kind of non-public competitively useful information that they've had access to during their time in government. So we've seen a growing number of these cases um, uh, before, you know, GAO and even um, Court of Federal Claims. But the interesting thing is that in 2023, we saw the reverse. So in, instead of the movement of the government official to the contractor, where they have that information, we saw a situation where you had a, a contractor, an employee of a contractor, uh, leave the contractor and go to work for the government uh, and try to go uh, accept a position as uh, serving on the technical evaluation board um, for a procurement. And this is the guidehouse, uh, the guidehouse protest from 2023. And they, the person was a former employee. Um, it was actually De- Deloitte was the awardee, and they sh- uh, served as a senior consultant. And what uh, the protest was ulti- ultimately sustained because what GAO found was that there was just not much done to adequately consider this conflict from the information that this individual had in their private sector uh, employment to what they brought to the government in this role that would have involved um, uh, Deloitte. And so they, they basically had this as a, like a disqualifying financial interest. And there were a lot of issues behind the scenes that kind of related to the agency not cooperating um, and providing, according to GAO, not providing you know the record so that GAO could fully consider whether, in fact, there was this conflict of interest. Um, but ultimately, GAO found without that information, they, they couldn't they couldn't find that this was, you know, free of the conflict of interest they were so worried about. And what I find interesting in this case is, is it's just a, a reminder that it is a revolving door, right? We see a lot of these conflict of interest cases in one direction, but they can also occur in the other direction. And that both from the government perspective and also from the private sector side, you need to be tracking this type of information and be aware of it and go through your appropriate channels and and, and get your appropriate approvals uh, so that this doesn't, necessarily taint, first of all, open you up to liability personally or your company, but also, you know, taint a procurement. Because frankly, no one is more motivated to kind of expose one of these things than a competitor. Uh, So it's going to come out. Um, And so it's a good reminder to follow these things. And as I tell my students in class, this is not one of those scenarios where somebody can say, well, it's, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. No, 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 no. Get get that approval on the front end um, because if you're you're in the in the forgiveness realm, uh, you, you might be going to jail um, or you may have just lost your contract. So that's yeah, the, the it, lesson to be learned from that. Yeah, and it seems it's kind of interesting in that it doesn't really involve like something wrong with the winner's proposal or like you know the revolving drawer in reverse. It's really independent of the winning company at the time and just the status of this particular individual that that raised the issue that's kind of that's that's pretty unique yeah you, but you know if you think about the the context of conflicts of interest ultimately what do we want in a procurement system to you know award contracts to the kind of best providers that provide the best goods and services that provide the best value and the fear in all of these cases and the reason we have these laws in place are to make sure that the decision is based on those reasons and not because somebody is biased towards their former employer um, in some sort of way. And and that's just it's just a safeguard, again, to make sure you're making the right decision, because we see time and time again when decisions are based on 
inappropriate reasons, whether it be a financial conflict of interest or bribery or corruption, that's when things go really bad. I mean, it's the reason why we see, you know, bridges crumbling and and buildings crumbling and the whole host of um, procurements gone bad where the product was bought because somebody was bribed or had a conflict rather than awarding it to the actual deserving contractor. Yeah, what's your sense of where like the protest system is? I think that there's a misconception that protest is, you know, constant, right? That all, every single procurement is going to be protested and that, you know, that protests are driving um, everything in the system, although frankly, they have an outsized and almost disproportionate impact on it. Um, I'll put a pin in that and come back to it. Uh, The one study I think that we can look to uh, reliably is from 2018, um, where RAND took a look at DOD procurements and found that despite this belief that almost every contract is protested, um, when it comes to DOD contracts, only about 0.3% are actually protested. So it's a very, very small number comparatively. Um, I get that it doesn't feel like that, um, especially in years where there are Many protests, um, uh, the CIO SP4 protests that just yes. never ending uh, yes. uh, is what pretty much comes to mind when you think of that. Um, but uh, the, truthfully, that the data shows that it's not nearly as prevalent as it seems. And, and unfortunately, this has had an outsized impact on uh, the acquisition workforce, where there's a constant fear of protest that really does drive the drive their decision-making in a way that I think is actually harmful. It makes them extremely risk-averse, less likely to innovate, um, less likely to communicate with industry for fear of, you know, a protest. And and really, everyone is harmed because of this, what I call, fear of protest. Yeah, it is something that shapes... the, the the procurement process in the sense that people are going to check the box. Have I done this, this, and this and not, you know, use the flexibility or the discretion that is actually in, you know, in the regulations to make some sort of independent business judgments out of how, how to handle things. It's, you know, it's very sort of, if I, if I do a textbook approach and don't take any kind of risks or change things, uh, I get the result, which is an award, of a contract, but did you get the best award, right? The best value award really at the end of the day. Um, you know, I just get your thoughts on this. It seems to me like COSP4 procurements like that, those are kind of market making procurements, right? It's going to set, you know, a market for uh, up to 10 years. And that was the stakes are higher, you know, or even high value like program type procurements, there are, it is more likely to have a protest on those than like your, you know, so when you start looking at the data, you could slice it different ways in some ways. Is that, is that fair? I think that is fair when you look at it, obviously, because we're looking at the total number of procurements, you're going to be thinking about those really small procurements that just never, you know, there might not even be authority to protest or, you know, they're just not going to get protested. Um, But these large procurements, sure. And and frankly, there's a lot more to work with when you're dealing with a protest. A lot more can go wrong when you're dealing with some of these massive protests. But honestly, when you see some of these protests, there's these, these almost these errors that you look to and you wonder, you know, wow, this really could have been avoided. And we talk a lot about that in, in, in my formation of government contracts class about kind of the golden rules and, and what kind of themes do we see when protests are sustained and and 
you know, there's a multitude of them, you know, obviously not following the laws or the big one. And, but one of them that I always drives me crazy is when you don't see documentation, which to me is just such an easy like level right. of, you know, right. documenting your decision-making, you know, documenting why you did it because this lack of documentation, if, if GAO doesn't have a lot to go on, um, that protest is increasingly going to be sustained. And so I, I always say it's it's the kind of advice you learned in elementary school, like show your work. Um, and if right. more people just showed their work, I think we'd see um, a, a, a better turnout in some instances. Yeah. And the government side, document your decision on the contractor side, you know, you document decisions you make in terms of how you interpret the contract and all that sort of thing. And we're going to talk about that when we come back, Jessica, and we talk about the super value decision. My guest today is Jessica Tillipman. She is the associate dean for government procurement law and government contracts at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Jessica Tillipman. She is the Associate Dean for Government Procurement Law and Government Contracts at the George Washington University Law School. And uh, we've covered uh, bid protests a little bit, revolving door, and um, I thought it was a great segue about documentation and objective versus subjective thought when you're in documenting what your decision-making is. And that goes to the to the super value decision that Civil False Claims Act case. Um, it goes to the to the standards of proof or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, we had a really large case that came out um, out of our Supreme Court uh, last summer uh, called. Uh, the shooty, uh, it's a shooty case, but it's uh, often referred to as a super value case. Um, and basically, uh, this is a case that dealt with this issue of ambiguity. What happens when there is an ambiguous regu- you know, regulation or, you know, contract term um, or, or requirement? Um, what, what happens in those instances and how does that relate to kind of fraud or false claims act liability? And um, at the time, going up to the Supreme Court, we had um, numerous cases, but importantly for this case, a Seventh Circuit case um, that dealt with this concept of objective reasonableness. And, and the theory behind this is that, you know, if you have an objectively reasonable interpretation of a ambiguous, you know, reg, statute, whatever, um, and you haven't been warned away from this 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 objectively reasonable interpretation by the government, then then that's basically a defense to 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 the to live false claims act liability. And so that's the the, the very very short summary of what it was. Um, but the Supreme Court rejected that that notion. They basically said and that's not about objectively reasonable. If you subjectively know that you have the wrong interpretation that's enough to create liability. And and notably in that case, it involved um, Safeway and SuperValue. It was a, a Medicare, Medicaid type case, which frankly is most of these cases where we see False Claims Act, even though it has a dramatic impact in the government contracts industry, um, where it had to deal with their, their pricing and the discounts that they were providing to consumers and basically charging the government more um, when they received, you know, these reimbursements um, from the government and Medicare and Medicaid programs. And there was evidence provided in those cases showing that the companies thought their claims were actually inaccurate, uh, but they submitted to them anyway because they subjectively believed that they were wrong. But 
during litigation, their lawyers were able to successfully argue that, you know, they had an objectively reasonable interpretation. And so the Supreme Court, again, just rejected that out hand and said it is about your subjective belief. And and so this really does um, this is a defense that had been relied on for a while, particularly in, a, in an environment where we see a lot of uh growing use of sub what we call sub-regulatory guidance. It's not a regulation, it's not a law, but you know, the agency has produced guidance and other and other sorts of things. So it's um it's definitely made things uh it's a tricky environment, especially in a heavily regulated industry. And it just really does put the onus then on contractors to truly, if they're faced with an ambiguous contract term or regulation or requirement, to really kind of clear the air to, you know, go to the government and and confirm, is this, you know, the correct interpretation to document their interpretation at the time. So that gets with your documentation. So there are a variety of things that companies can do in the face of a decision like this more proactively from a compliance standpoint. Um, But from a litigation standpoint, this is going to have a pretty dramatic impact. Um, Were you surprised by the decision, the way it came out? Uh, A little bit, um, mostly because I think that uh, increasingly, there had been this belief that this was a fairly strong defense, this objective reasonableness defense, and it was, it was so prominent. Um, and so I, I was I was a little surprised by the outcome. I think for folks that listen to the oral argument, not, not necessarily so, but I mean, in the lead up to it, I think I, sure. I was surprised by it. Um, but but I also understand the issue of if you've got evidence showing that people knew that they had the wrong interpretation, it's pretty compelling. Um, so I, I always like to say I'm kind of in the middle on this one, um, but I do think it'll be interesting to see what happens in litigation because when I teach the False Claims Act in my in my classes, it is by far the hardest statute to teach. And a lot of that comes down yeah. to the litigation, which it's it's all over the map. So it's I think it's going to be a challenge for for practitioners um, and even for companies for from a compliance standpoint in this area. Yeah, I was surprised, too. But then you to your point, then you step back and think, you know, if they had they understood or believed that. Yeah, this might not be uh, such a compelling, uh, accurate interpretation of something, you know, and you know that, and the court could say, yeah, it doesn't matter if you know that, and, and that being, I, you know, it's uh, that would be a tough, you know, from a from a government perspective, I know that would be tough, um, obviously, but um, so I know another area we got a uh, uh, but two or three minutes left in this. And I wanted to make sure I asked you about this because I know you've done an article on it and you're very interested in it. Um, and that's uh, artificial intelligence as everybody's interested in these days, right? Uh, chat GPT or all that stuff, but artificial intelligence and procurement. So what did you write about and, you know, and what, what are you focusing on? Sure. So I always like to say it's artificial intelligence. And then I always like to put in parentheses and other emerging technologies, because um, not everything that has been that has been developed in recent years, um, even though it kind of looks a little like artificial intelligence is actually, you know, artificial intelligence. So I say AI and emerging tech and the way that I've been looking at it, and there are a lot of people looking at this from a lot of different angles. uh, But my main interest area is how can we use Um, AI and emerging tech to kind of reduce risk in government procurement and promote efficiency. 
And I've looked at some examples in the United States that that are already being used. And I think there's a lot of promise. Um, I think that we've seen, for example, um, in the Army using their Dora bot to basically make the responsibility determination process more efficient. And that is, you know, some a process that, you know, you would manually go to a variety of databases to verify a contractor's, you know, certifications and responsibility. Now it can do it for you in minutes. And that to me is, you know, ultimately the decision about responsibility is a human decision, but the gathering of that information makes it much more efficient. Um, or I really admire the work that the team at Department of Homeland Security has done by trying to experiment with the use of artificial intelligence to um, review contractor past performance. Um, And there's a great anecdote, and I love to use it to explain how effectively it's being used, where, you know, when you're a, you know, a contracting officer and you're looking at evaluations, you could have, you know, thousands and thousands of evaluations, particularly from the largest contractors. And because you can't sift through all of that um, CEOs are asking for, you know, your top three evaluations, which, as you can imagine, which ones the contractors are going to pick um, doesn't make for necessarily the best um, unbiased decision making. So by having, uh, you know, using technology to sift through that to find the most relevant um, evaluations, um, similar than we would be using for, you know, Yelp, you know, what's the most relevant sure. review, right? Yeah, yeah. This, this all makes sense. And ultimately, again, you know, you're not substituting a machine for human judgment, but it's making these processes more efficient. Um, And by that way, also reducing risk um, in a procurement. So there are many, many, and I have a long list of examples of like not only the United States, but other countries doing it um, where there shows a lot of promise and, but not without some concerns. Um, Do you want me to hit the concerns or do you want to ask? Yeah, real quick. (laughs) Couple of the concerns. So, so the only thing I caution is that I feel like a lot of the conversation is turned to uh, AI is like the thing that will save us all, right? AI is the solution. And my response to that is that no fancy chatbot or um, AI or other emerging tech tool is going to help you if you have, you know, poor data collection practices, if you're still using paper uh, for your procurement system, if For example, for companies that are experimenting with it for their whistleblowing programs, if you have a culture of firing anybody that comes to you with evidence of wrongdoing, you can't substitute bad culture for a bot. So I think it addresses some um, great areas where you can improve efficiency and really just improve some of these tools, but it's not a solution for kind of systemic and inherent problems that we, we really need to address in other ways. Yeah, and and we have to close there. I will say one thing is like that's interesting because I know companies are using AI to help them find the most relevant experiences associated with a procurement, so they submit them as part of their proposal. So it, yeah, you could see that's interesting stuff. And uh, we'll we'll talk more about AI when you have when I have you back on the show. My guest today, well, first of all, thanks, thanks so much for joining me today, Jessica. I appreciate it. My guest today has been Jessica Till. Tillman. She is the Associate Dean for Government Procurement Law and Government Contracts at the George Washington University Law School. And I'm Roger Waldron. You've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.